Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining me on Turn a Moment into a Moment. Thank you for joining me on Turn a Moment into a Moment. Thank you for joining me on Turn a Moment into a Moment. Thank you for joining me on Turn a Moment into a Moment. Thank you for all right, we having a little difficulties. Just one second. Hi, everyone. Uh oh. Still having some problems. Just hold on. Just be patient. trying to get it together. Just give me a second Strange. Um, okay. 
I'm trying to get rid of that feedback, you guys, and then we can go. Okay. Just one second. All right. Hold on. Okay. All right. Well, hello there. How are you? I'm great. I'm going to let you talk for a second while I figure out what's going on. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome everyone to turning a moment into a movement. And we are so glad to have you tonight joining us as we change the narratives on everything that is happening in our community and um and realizing who we really are i'm so excited um being a part of turning a moment into a movement and loving arms with wonderful brothers and sisters who really desire the good to happen in our communities uh, being a part of transforming love community where that's a whole wonderful area too of transforming lives and it is important for me that i participate in everything that i do and believe that i do that and that my life makes up what is my belief system and so i'm i'm part of the g100 wisdom women i am also part of michigan social justice network I am daily a behavioral interventionist. And like I always say, I believe that behavior, um, us learning how our behavior is, as we master ourselves, we can have better communities. <laughs> Don't you agree? Yeah. And, and now being part of the owner of the Choice Zone, where I help people make decisions and choices that will help transform who they are, change their narratives, change my own narrative uh, in the process. And so uh, I just believe I'm a narrative changer for myself first and anybody who connects to me. So Jay, I'm so glad, girl, you know how to work this stuff. <laughs> I was sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I was sweating. I didn't know what to do. I'm, try I'm trying to just get the light right. That's Let me just do that one thing right. <laughs> So I want to, while I got you on here, just say, uh, welcome everyone. Sorry, we had some technical things going on. That happens when you have two and three devices at the same time going on. However, we're here. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jay Love. This is Revitia. And this is um, turning a moment into a movement. Um, I represent the Justice for Gerard movement as well as Revitia. And we come here every Friday to talk about wrongful convictions, injustice, um, a range of topics. But we're here every week to motivate. I got on this movement because of my son, Gerard, who was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he didn't do. And um, that birthed this movement. And so welcome. Um, thank you for joining us. I'm, uh, again, I apologize for what was going on in the beginning, but we're here. Uh, we have some awesome guests. 
And Reverend T, I'm glad that you're here. I see you yeah. got that lighting together, girl. And, uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank everyone else for uh, being patient with us as we um, got everything together. Um, hold on. Let me bring in Mr. Shay. Hey, Trishay. <laughs> Hey everybody! Oh my gosh, I missed y'all so much. No, we had we missed you. Yes, yes. Your voice makes me happy right now. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. Introduce I yourself. I'm happy about a lot of things going on right now, but we're gonna paperclip that, you know. Yeah. Um, but my name, for those that don't know, is Trisha Duckworth. You can call me T Duck Wheezy. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> And I am the executive director and founder of Survivor Speak. Um, also, the lead consultant at Value Black Lives because that's what everybody should be doing, right? Valuing Black Lives. Um, what can I say? I'm grateful to you, Jay, for starting this platform because it has just morphed into just beyond, I'm sure, all of our wildest dreams, right? Um, and really it's so funny because people be like, y'all coming on tonight, <laughs> coming on tonight, you know? So again, thank you, Jay and Reverend Tia, just for all the great work that you all are doing. You know, it's going to take each and every one of us putting our hand to the plow in our area and doing the work. I don't, you might be a data person. You might be a frontline person. You might be baking cookies with people on the front line. You you might be carrying, you know, the, the water cooler. I mean, whatever you can find your hands to do, I encourage us all to do it because, see, if we continue to sleep and we don't awaken ourselves and get busy, we're going to continue to slip and slip deeper into the slumber, the kind of slumber that gets us the mess that we in right now. Exactly. And so in order to come out of this mess that we're in right now, we need everybody. And that includes you. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Trisha. I see one of our guests. I'm going to bring him in. Looks like he's driving. Hello, Mr. Clifton. How are you? Hey everybody, I'm driving. I'll be home in a minute, so I can I can I can pull it here, everybody. Trisha, uh, Reverend T, everybody, J Love. It's an honor to be here. I've been busy. I got confused on the time because I would have just stayed at work on the desk at the desk uh -huh. and finished you know finished the show. I was thinking that it was uh like 5:45 Central. That way I would have time. I would have been at home on my laptop and everything. But I'm driving. I but. No matter if I'm driving, I can still hear, I can still comment, and I can still give my input. I'm Maurice Clifton. I'm from Mississippi, a little town called Mount Bayou. Uh, I served 23 years of incarceration. Excuse the rain. I love the rain, though. But I served 23 years of incarceration. I've only been out two years, a little over two years, January 10th, 2020. Since being out, uh, I work as a chaplain at the Mississippi Department of Corrections. With that being said, man, I, I chose to go back in because there were so many people in my state uh, that were still lost. So I wanted to go in and be a beacon of hope to lead them out of that darkness or out of that slumber that Trisha was talking about. You know, so so many men are still on the outside. They're sleepwalking. Mm -hmm. You know, they're part of the walking dead. They're unconscious of the ills and the injustice that goes on with our justice system. So I think that a lot of people, like Trisha said, need to wake up, wake up. You 
know, enjoying the, enjoying the movement, enjoying the fight, because I was wrongfully convicted. But in order to get my freedom, I had to accept uh, freedom from the new law called the first step that uh, Dream Corps and so many, Amy can do. Stones were crowded and so many people fought for my release. I had served 23 years of a 33-year incarceration as a first-time offender for 6.4 grams of cocaine. So I think that uh, I had no choice but to get back into the fight because I was wrongfully convicted firsthand mm -hmm. by corrupt. Everybody in my case went to prison starting in 2001, and they still didn't give me any release. Every agent on my case has been to prison or either committed suicide. Yet and still, I had to get out on a law, the first step law. You know, so none, none of that even mattered to the Northern District of Mississippi. So it was imperative for me to get back into the fight and fight for the guys who were still incarcerated in the federal prison and in the state prison. I didn't know my own home state had so many, so many problems in it. You know, so I just want to be a part of the change. I recently got ordained about a month ago, you know, about a month ago in Chicago. And so that's one of the things I'm getting ready to go back to seminary school to finish my degree and just land in the scholarship. So I'm just out here working. Like I said, my nonprofit sales deals with helping formerly incarcerated people make their transition home. And I work with families of the incarcerated, uh, you know, got people who are incarcerated, men and women. So I do community work here in my hometown as much as I can. I give away stuff. I cook food during the holiday. And I try to do something once a month just to give back to my community, you know, with whatever God blesses me with. And he's definitely, he definitely has blessed me, you know, with a lot and a network. I'm also co-host with James Jones, me and him used to walk a track and talk about things like this. What can we do to change the world? Not just our circumstances, but the world. And so we have a show called The Growth Hour that we have every Sunday that Jay is a, you know, a privy to. So thank, I'm not going to take up the show. I'll, I'll come back on. I'll accept any questions. I'll answer them honestly to the best of my ability. You know, my, my lived and learned experience. So, you know, I'm here. All Thanks right, for the thank opportunity. You. Yes, thank you. Um, we... We're going to have a really great conversation, and I know you're going to contribute a lot to it. I see Mr. James Jones look like he's driving, too. Hey. Hey, how y'all doing? Yes, I am driving. Please uh, forgive me for this. I have a, it was very important for me to uh, attend this show. You know, so regardless of what I'm doing or where I'm at, I wanted to make sure that I was uh, on the show. You know, so I wanted to first thank you for uh, inviting me for being on the show. You and the panel for inviting me for being on y'all's show. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and give a, a, a brief a brief background of myself. Kind of hard to follow the gentleman that just went, you know, but I'm going to do the best that I can. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, as, as I uh, myself was uh, formerly incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for, for almost 22 years. Um, I can't. I had. I came home and I founded a nonprofit called the Reinvention Center out of necessity for the services that we are offering. Um, let me expound on that. When I was in the halfway house, I seen a lot of people that didn't have support and didn't have the things that they needed, and they were returning back to prison. So what I decided to do was to create something to bridge that gap and help them get the things that they need to be successful out in prison. So I started the Reinvention Center. In addition to doing that, I also published my first book um, to assist people who's in, out, and that's in pretrial. 
you know, and it's called Getting Arrested, um, The Insider's Guide to the Federal Legal System. Presently, I'm almost complete. Um, complete I'm almost through publishing my second book, which is called Ob Obtaining Success, Closing the Revolving Door. And it's going to entail situations, real life situations that we encounter upon being released that, that causes us to make decisions to go back to prison. Um, in addition to that, what I, I also um, be active in the community. I go to different old folks' homes. I help children. We, we volunteer and, and try to help the community. Um, May, in fact, May 21st, myself, Sal, Mississippi, and other organizations are putting together a community awareness day where we're going to speak to the community about stopping violence, educating them about the system, amongst other things, and giving resources that can help people that's coming home. You know, so, um, you know, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Um, again, I thank everybody for inviting me and having me on the panel. And I look forward to the conversation tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. And I'll need you guys to be driving safe while we talking, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Attorney Hugo Matt. How are you? Well, good. Much apologies. I had some uh, legal matters to take care of for some folks. I'm sorry I'm a little bit late, but I'm here now, and I've been so excited listening to the gentlemen that are talking, and it, it's just a wonderful thing to see us all coming together. And I don't know how many people had a chance to look at the PBS special last Wednesday at 10 o'clock, but those stories are just heart, you know, heart-rending. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that tonight. But uh, we're all in one purpose, and I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too, uh, Attorney Hugo Matt. So um, we're going to talk about uh, life after lockup. But first, I need to, Allie is not here tonight because she had another engagement, but she made a video and it has a little bit to do with the shooting. It has to do with the shooting in Grand Rapids. But also I thought it was important to play it because someone uh, left me a message and said, um, will we be talking about what happened in Grand Rapids because they have been in um, prison for 17 years and what's going on is triggering, triggering their um, PTSD. And so, and that has a lot to do with um, life after um, lockup, the, the mental part. So I'm going to play with Ali left us and then we're going to uh, start the conversation there and then we're going to just take it on. Um, all right, you guys, here we go. My name is Alexandria and I'm a community activist in the metro area also part of the Oakland County Prosecutor's first ever racial justice board and the Oakland County Democratic Party Black Democratic Committee. On April 4th, Patrick Leolio was pulled over by a Grand Rapids police officer for a traffic violation where the plate on his vehicle did not match. When the officer approached Mr. Leolio's vehicle during the traffic stop, Patrick stepped out of the vehicle. The officer asked for his license. And then that's when Patrick asked, what did I do? Patrick began to flee on foot, 
When the officer caught up to him, a tussle began. At no point did Patrick gain the advantage. At no point did Patrick have a weapon. The traffic stop resulted in Patrick Leola being murdered. He was shot in the back of the head by the Grand Rapids Police Department police officer. After numerous protests, the Grand Rapids Police Department released the video footage. There has also been national support for unedited footage to be released, as well as naming the officer. The family of Patrick Leolia is calling for the unedited video to be released, for the officer's name to be released, and for the officer to be prosecuted. The family of Patrick Leolia is now pursuing a lawsuit with the help of attorney Ben Crump, who also defended the family of Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. In a press conference held by the Grand Rapids Police Department, the police chief, Eric Winstrom, said that the case was being investigated by the Michigan State Police as a way to be an unbiased and fully transparent as well as independent investigation. If Grand Rapids Police Department were in charge of the investigation, it would be a conflict of interest. But the Michigan State Police are still police. They also are participating in racially profiling Black people. Most of those that they ticket, most of those that they arrest are Black people in overwhelming numbers. The American Civil Liberties Union also sued the Michigan State Police last year for racial profiling. The Michigan State Police may have made public statements about racial profiling existing in their policing, but they haven't made public statements about creating a independent civilian-led expert oversight. They haven't made any statements about creating independent oversight that includes ability to revise use of force policies, ability to subpoena police officers at the state level. How could anyone expect justice for Patrick Leolia when the Michigan State Police is participating in the same activity as the Grand Rapids Police Department? Patrick Leolia was 26 years of age. He was a black male from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he came to America to escape the violence in his homeland. And on April 4th, he was murdered by a white police officer in Grand Rapids, where he was pulled over for a traffic stop because his license plate did not match his vehicle. He was face down on the grass and was shot in the back of the head. You cannot shoot an unarmed person just because they resist arrest. You cannot shoot an unarmed person because of the color of their skin. What's preventing this from happening in other cities around the country? What's preventing this from happening in Dearborn, Southfield? What's preventing this from happening in your city? Nobody's above accountability. It's time for elected officials on a local level, district, and state level to take an aggressive stance in support of holding police officers accountable. I stand in support with all the activists on the ground protesting for justice, justice for Patrick Leolia. Prayers to the family of Patrick Leolia. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Trisha. Now why you call me first? <laughs> <laughs> you had that look on your face. <laughs> oh, 
Oh my goodness. Let's go. <laughs> um I can truly resonate to whoever reached out to you and talked about the PTSD because like uh, when I watched that video, it just shook me to the core of my soul. And then I began to see comments like, see, if they would just comply, then they won't die, you know, and just high levels of ignorance. Um, and I think that what some folks aren't factoring in is the language barrier, right? Um, because a, a lot of our um, African um, siblings, they have been taught to say yes. And, you know, don't, don't come up against, you know, someone that is Caucasian and to, you know, and so I believe there was some language barrier there. I believe there were some things going on. He really didn't understand and he was scared. You know, that's to me what it results in a lot of these things. Well, why did they pull off? They were scared. I'm scared when the police pull me over. They come to my door with their hand on their gun, you know, and that's an aggressive stance off the rip. And, you know, they don't practice that with everybody, right? But it, it just, there's so much trauma and there's so lack of accountability. And if I can be honest, they just don't mind killing us because all that's going to happen is they're going to take our money and pay the family and then, you know, that's it. So really the blood on our hands, because we want to have to pay the debt. They don't pay debts for what they do ever. And so for me, I, I'm so tired of us not holding folks accountable. Same thing with wrongful convictions. We'll let people out of prison, but then we'll be like, oh, clap, clap, clap. We let so many people out. So what? Why are they going in? If we don't address why they're going in, it's going to perpetuate it and continue the same cycle. The only way that this ends, y'all, is if we step up and we hold our legislators accountable in multiple ways. Recalls, not voting them in again. A lot of this falls on us. And I say to us, what are we going to do? How much blood are we going to let go down on our hands because of our lack of inaction and the things that we don't do? We get sad, we march, but what the hell else are we going to do to stop this foolishness? Because that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Fashe. Attorney Hugo Matt. Well, I agree with everything that's been said, but you see, from my perspective, in my arena, it starts with the way the law is structured. Now, in the state of Michigan, the police have got a right to stop you, not only if your license plate doesn't match your vehicle, they have a right to stop you if one of the lights is out on your license plate. You understand? You know, all, all of you that have cars, you know you've got like two lights that light up your license plate, right? They can stop you for one of those lights being out. And you see... the the game is so rigged, which is what I've said since forever. The game is so rigged. It's like the only defense we have is not to play. Okay. Is not, is not to play. Now this gentleman stopped supposedly because his, uh, his, his license plate didn't match the, um, you know, you know, his vehicle or what have you. Well, 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 let's just say that's true. Okay. 
let's just say that's true, all right? And a person fled, all right? Now, part of the problem is, is that with no federal standard for policing, okay, and mm -hmm. um, a lot of our Republican brothers and sisters, uh, with some weak water Democrats too, I might add, have simply been refusing absolutely for any kind of federal legislation on standardized policing. That's what we need, all right? So yes, what people are talking about to hold local officials accountable, believe me, I know. I ran a campaign to try to be sure local officials are, are held accountable. But the problem is the police know that they are their own little kingdoms, okay? Over 18,000 police agencies in the United States of America. No standardized conduct for any of them, for any of them. So now Grand Rapids is a, is a, is a pretty rich community. I think Grand mm -hmm. Rapids is the second largest city in the state of Michigan, if my memory uh, serves me right. So you can assume with that western part of the state with the DeVosses and uh, Myers, you know, and all those kind of things, there is a lot of money out there. And when I say a lot of money out there, I'm just going to be very candid. There's a lot of money out there to keep people that look like the people on this panel in check. Okay? Okay? You know, they view themselves as rivaling Detroit, superior to Detroit in terms of resources and money. So what I'm saying is it does not surprise me that a black man would would be stopped. I'm I, I'm not saying he knew the race of the man before he stopped him, but the way that it escalated. So let's say somebody flees. Part of the problem is you've got that police culture of machoism, of manhood. Who the hell are you to run from me? I'm going to teach you a lesson. You're going to run from me. You know, you don't run from me. You don't cut and run on me. And, and that problem is when you have that isolated incident. And what's the stuff about the body cam? It, isn't there some controversy about when that body cam was turned on? You know, so, yeah. so we, we don't know the whole story. All right. But I do know this. I've done enough murder cases to know when somebody's shot in the back of the head, it's hard for me to think they was putting up a fight. <laughs> it's very hard for me to see, 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 to, see to, you know, uh, putting up a fight. So I want the truth to come out. And God bless all of you for insisting on the truth to come out. Because if we've got another George Floyd situation, well, then let's get it on and send somebody's butt to prison. Yeah. Maurice? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I just think that uh, it's a sad situation, and I think that a lot of our struggles come from us not knowing the law where we live, or the law. Period. You you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because anytime, anytime they confront us, their 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 level of them them feeling like they're in danger goes up just because of how society has taught them, how their families has taught them. These are the same families. These are the generations of the same families that brought their kids to lynching. So we got to be mindful of that. These are the same families that created uh, uh, laws to imprison us after slavery. You, you know what I mean? These are the same families that, that didn't want our kids to come to school with them you know, before Brown versus the Board of Education, and then all the way up until then, they still gerrymander us out of society. 
Now, I was reading some of the comments when I seen the clip when it was shared on Facebook, and they had a lot of people talking about watch the whole video he took the taser, he took the taser from, you know, from him. I had sort of a, the same similar situation happen to me in Chicago, but I didn't run. You know, me and two of my friends got out of the car. I was in the back seat, and two officers stopped us. But one of the detectives had drugs in his hand. He was trying to put it in the pocket of the driver. So when I told him, I said, man, he's trying to put something in your pocket. Uh, you know, so don't let him stick his hand in your pocket. And so when he turned around, when he knocked his hand up, the drugs come out, and he took off running. The guy I was with took off running. The police automatically drawn his gun. This is in 1993. This is November 1993 in Chicago. So when the police drew his gun, I knocked the gun up, and the gun fell out of his hand. He picked it up and started chasing the guy I was with. The officer that was with him could have shot me, but he didn't. He hit me in the top of the head, and he, you know, he bust my head, and we struggled for the gun. If I don't win the, the fight, the struggle for the gun, then I die that night. But once I took the gun, me being on a different side of Chicago that I'm normally not used to being on, you know, it was a whole crowd had built up on the sideline. I'm talking about while I'm struggling with the officer with the gun, this is before the cell phone cameras and everything. While I'm struggling for the gun, you have 60 to 70 black people standing on the sideline watching me fight for my life. You understand? Mm-hmm. If I don't win the fight for that gun, I lose my life that night. But when I took the gun, my first instinct coming from the street was to not leave him as a witness. It was to run. But if I run, I know that I couldn't get away because I couldn't beat the radio. So I dropped the gun, crossed my leg. And when the officer got up, he kicked me. Chicago had a bad history of whooping people in the you know in the early in the eighties and the nineties. But this same officer came you know to my court to my trial and told the people he told the sergeant that he had hit me in the top of the head with the gun and i had disarmed him and they asked me that i want to press charges i didn't press charges because i was in fear of my life that if i pressed charges it was going to lock me up and i was going to end up losing my life in jail so many people lose their lives in jail but to streamline back to the the current situation regardless of what the whole video shows he didn't deserve to die like that, you know. And I know that I know that that officer's full intention was to leave him there. Was to leave him there, you know. At the, he rather kill him than to take a chance on him getting away. No matter whether it was a traffic ticket, we you know we got to stop losing our lives over a traffic ticket, over simpler stuff that's petty stuff, over petty stuff. And that's to them, our life is no no more than a videotape, no more than a pack of gum, no more than a traffic ticket. But whatever it is, that's the, to them, to them, you know, to mainstream white America, our lives are no more than than uh, worth more than materialistic things. So I think that, I think that, man, we got to start teaching our kids the dangers that they're in when poli- when, when, when they're confronted. By because they're going to be addressed totally different. If you look at, if you think about it, they took uh, Dylan Roof to McDonald's to get a hamburger after he went into the church and shot all those people. The guy in Boston that went in and killed, they didn't even handcuff him, taking him to prison. In in, in Denver, I mean, that went into the dead and killed all the people. They didn't even handcuff him, taking him to prison. 
you know, so, but you look at all of us, the Breonna Taylors, the George Floyd, and so many others, the, uh, the guy in Minnesota, the, the, the guys in Minnesota, our lives are not valued as their own kind's lives. And we got to change that dynamic to teaching our kids their self-worth. And we got to get our kids out of the street to not even be in there. To be in that, that that lane. I'm not saying that he was in any type of lane, but I know a lot, a lot of times we're racially profiled every city that we go into. Right. You know what I mean? And if we appear guilty, then we're automatically guilty. And we're not, once once that we're once that we appear once that we appear guilty, then our lives our livelihood diminish. Once they know that you don't understand the law, then your value your life value went down at least man you know a thousand percent. So I just think we got to change the dynamic at home and in the streets and in our schools now. You know, right. so, yeah, yeah. So when you also, let's look at it from a point of view of someone who has been locked up and like the gentleman who um, left me a message earlier today and said, you know, this, this is a trigger for me. You know, when people come home, these kind of things, you know, how do they deal with that as well? With these um, police shootings and um, um, especially when you're driving, you know, traffic stops and all these things could be triggers for people who are just trying to get their lives back, you know, trying to, um, you know, be returning to society and, you know, um, how is that or how do we approach that with people and how can that be, be a um, harmful to somebody who's just coming home? The, the thing is, it's, it's what they did inside or what they were exposed to inside. A lot of times, a lot of times, and uh, I'm just speaking from my experience, doing the 23 years I was inside, I seen a lot of black men. I used to develop a lot of classes and teach a lot of classes inside. I always worked at the library trying to educate people, trying to educate myself so that I could pass the knowledge on breaking out criminal thinking. And so I suffered from PTSD when I came. I had, man, I used to have panic attacks when I first came home because, because being incarcerated, you know, it does something because everything is so structured. And they control so much of your life while you're inside that, you know, it becomes institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to break that if you don't do things inside to become mentally free. If you, you know, if you don't do anything to shake yourself out of that box that they put you in or to break the norms of them, like the count times, like to telling you when you have to go eat or, you know, so a lot of guys sit up and play, they play board games. They give them board games and they give them, uh, TV and everything, and they're not working on what they're going to do. How can I not come back to prison? Me, as a first-time offender, I knew that I had to change me in order for me not to come back. But I still suffer from PTSD. I still suffer from panic attacks. And so what I would tell them is that if you're in compliance, there's no need for you to run. The worst that you can do if you're out of compliance is go to jail and to have the opportunity to pay your fine and to get in fines. It's not worth 
you can't get to the point to where where you are fearful and you jump into a fight because even if you win the fight, let's just say if he he win the fight and he disarm him, nine times out of ten his instinct was going to tell him to to do to the officer what he did to him. Most of us are running away, not knowing that that we can't like like the guy in uh in Carolina that was running away. His first instinct was to run away than to I know he's because you think about going back into this cage. If they did to animals what they do to men inside a prison, leaving them incarcerated or in the shoe or incarcerated that long, then then uh, uh, Peter would be all over them. You know the 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 animal rights people would be all over them. Mm-hmm. So we have to change how they treat our men and women inside. You know what I mean? And we have to get them counseling while they're inside and counseling before they come home and counseling immediately after they get home. You know what I mean? I spent 18 months on 23 and 1. In order for me to come off 23 and 1, I had to go on an 11-day hunger strike where I went from weighing 219 to 193. But it was worth me coming out of that box, that 8 by 12, that, 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 uh, that, 8 by 12, whatever size it's in, it was worth me coming out outside that mental box that they had us in to where we have no social contact. And that's why when you see people come out, they have no they have no social skill mm-hmm. because everything has changed. Technology has changed. People have changed. And it's different dynamics everywhere. I was blessed to have a family man and, and loved ones to help me make the transition home. But I also worked on myself while I was inside so that whenever I encountered these situations, we used to have talks inside with James, me, James, and a lot of other guys. What do we do when we encounter these? Because the system is designed to put us back into that revolving door. The system is designed to do that. Nobody is looking at how the system is designed. So we're looking at when guys get out, we're not looking at the system that they just came through. It's designed for him to come back. Mm-hmm. It's designed. The maze is designed for him to return back to, to where he just came from, not to become a productive citizen in society. You got to work extra hard and study the maze in order for you to navigate through it. And it's still hard for, you know, myself to navigate through it. So I have to be conscious of every decision I make, even when I'm stopped, you know, by the police. Now I have to be conscious that I have a record, and that's going to put up a trigger for him in order to, and, and to become panic. So I have to, under all due rest, I have to remain calm because I know that my very life is in danger at that very moment. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, man. Counseling is the best thing that I can say. And to knowing that the most, it's not you running, Chris, and uh, how can I say it, in the perpetrator, who the police who, he, he changes from servant to perpetrator. The instant that we run. Right. Because that's how society has taught him. That's how his mother and dad has raised him. There are only a few. There are only a few who don't think like that. Because it's always been that they felt like they were superior to us in everything. You understand? That we're not even worthy to be, especially if we've been incarcerated, that we're not even worthy to be in the same room. We're not even worthy to be in the same conversation. Right. And so they're going to protect their they're going to protect their system with their very last breath. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's why we have to fight the suits, fight the suits uh, to to get the name, get the, to get the camera, to get the film. Why should we have to do that, man? Wrong is wrong. You know what I mean. So 
I don't know, man. We got to do a lot of things together in order for us to change everything. We can't go. We know we got to turn the justice for Gerard movement into all of our movement to everything that's you know, it's it's got to be a coalition. It just can't be you fighting for Gerard because he was wrongly convicted. Man, there are some, look how many people got off death row last year after yeah. spending thirty and forty years, right. and then you still tell them they can't get money. They change the law so people can't get the money, so they can't make the you know they don't want you with money because money is going to change your. You, the first thing they did when they they found out they were guilty after they got off from beating Rodney King was to give him some money, and that same money was his demise in the end because nobody yeah. taught him financial literacy and everything. You understand? So he yeah. was still caught up in that well. So it's just so much. It's, it's so much. So many things we have to change. You know, uh, Trisha. You know, uh, Pastor. Everything. It's just so many things that we have to change, man. And. Conversation like this is the beginning to changing those things. Yes. Yeah. 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 I want. I wanted to chime in on this because uh, what I'm noticing, and what I, I heard Trisha say a little bit earlier, and that is identifying. You know, when people are being victimized, and yet the task is given for us to decide what we're going to do when the criminals who are the criminals who are the murderers and it's in the language and what we're saying you know well it's the system yes yeah, the system and it's the people in the system the system can't run without people and the system can't run the way it's been running without biased people people who are prejudiced people who do not care it this is a system and um, in one of the studies regarding police and, and the habitual nature to kill black people, one of the things they looked at is what they call threat perception failure. Okay, they, and that's, that's just what the studies do. They just give it these nice little cute names. The officer believed that the person was armed and it turned out not to be the case. And these failures were more likely to occur when the suspect or the subject was black, even if the officer themselves were black or Latina. So here we are. This is called the threat perception failure. Officers like the rest of us have an implicit bias linking blacks to crime. So the black crime implicit bias might be implicated in some of the use of deadly force against African-Americans. So they justify it. There's the justification that, oh, well, black people are more likely to do crime. That is not a true statistic and yet we just follow it and we're following it police are following this and the police can be black or latino themselves the whole system is a whole people and the people are the problem We need to make changes. 
on so many levels. Can I say this one thing, J-Lo? Go ahead. Okay, well, she, she didn't say yes, I'll take that as a no. I guess I'm in the <laughs> no talk corner. Okay, then. Uh, Hugo Mack punished once again for something he didn't do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Look, and see, the thing of it is, is this, is that in 1964, two-thirds of the prison population was white. See, we, we let people make us forget history. But in 1990, two-thirds of the prison population was black, brown, and everything else. So what happened to change it from two-thirds white in 64 to two-thirds non-white in 1990? And see, part of the problem that I think that, that we as black people have, we continue to allow people to take examples of something heinous or something wrong and put us in that category, but we refuse to return the bias and prejudice. Okay, and, 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 and as godly people, I understand that, but a prime example is this. They will take an instance of a black person selling drugs or you remember Ronald Reagan with the welfare queen? Remember that? Remember that when he was running for office? Talking about a welfare queen with a Cadillac and how she was ripping off uh, the government and having fur coats. Remember all that? Well, he was talking about a black woman. You see, and, and, and what happened is we allowed them to continue to define us. It's like putting us all in a barrel, uh, acid, and then it's up to us to try to swim out that. And so part of the problem is when they talk about black crime and, and, and victimization, you notice we don't hold all Caucasians responsible for Hitler. We don't hold all Caucasians responsible for Mussolini. We don't hold all white people responsible for Joseph Stalin. We don't hold all white people responsible for Timothy McVeigh, okay? But you see, we continue to allow other people to define us, okay? To define us the welfare queen. And it pisses me off so much to see the disrespect leveled at black women, you know, because some women are in a sex trade who happen to be black. But yet the way I see my own wife, my sisters disrespected on the streets because of the color of their skin. So so part of it is, and, and I know you probably get tired of me talking about black men, but black men have got to stand up and be who we're supposed to be. And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. We have to look to ourselves to protect our community. I've heard a woman named Shay Duckworth say, ain't nobody else coming. Ain't nobody else coming. So we've got to step up and start policing ourselves and looking out for ourselves. And when you say hold people accountable, that, that's exactly right. But I also heard somebody say one time, we become comfortably numb. You know, if it ain't our door getting kicked in, well, they shouldn't have been in it. You know, you know, I got to get my nails done or or the football game coming on. You know, you know, I can't I can't get caught up in it. So, you know, um, let's just stop letting people redefine us and hold us accountable for things we had nothing to do with while we give everybody else a pass. That's all I'm saying. Jay, you're muted. I can't mind mute myself, and I'm going to pull over so I can give this comment. Oh. Um, 
Oh, we all right. Cause I'm gonna make sure you know I'm, I'm gonna get where I'm going eventually. Um, what I want to say is that um, I want to go back to the topic of the show, which is life after prison. Um, I feel that life after prison doesn't start when you get out of prison. I think it starts when you're in prison. You should start preparing for that life after prison while you're in prison. You know, um, a lot of things are offered that we don't take advantage of. You know, um, the gentleman saying that is saying that that was a trigger for him. You know, and I'm sure it is. It's the trigger for all of us. You know, all of us get upset when we see it. You know, uh, it's what we do after we see it and after we that triggers it that, that matters. You know, so what we have to do is take advantage again, take advantage of the programs that are in prison, the psychological programs and stuff that you can go through to change your mindset. You know, because myself, at first, I was like the gentleman. I used to get upset all of the time. And then when I started building and working on myself in a lot of ways, not just through the counseling, but counseling is is uh, very, very important in order to transform your mind and transform yourself into a better person. But my 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 goal was this here, or my the, the point I'm making is in order, you know, in order for us to get to a, a better place in our mind, you know, we have to take advantage of this. We have to stop worrying about the, the stereotypes of, hey, you're crazy if you're going to counseling. And once you go to counseling and you start transforming into something different, counseling, God, prayer, um, support, all of that are, is all of the ingredients of this pie. Once you do that, I couldn't wait for them to pull me over because I had done so much wrong before that I was legitimate now. And I, I couldn't wait for that to happen. However, even though I'm legitimate and I call myself, couldn't wait for it to happen, I'm still nervous when they come to my car. Um, just recently, I was pulled over, like Hugo Max said, because I had a busted tail light. Not a busted tail light. My 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 bulb was blown, and he pulled me over. And one guy's walking to my my driver's window, and he has my attention. But out of habit, I'm I'm surveying my whole vehicle, and I see the other officer sliding up on my passenger side with his hand on my gun. You know, so what I did was acknowledge him before he even got to the window, and he started laughing because I told him, "Hey, we watching each other." You know, we're not, you're not just watching me. We're watching each other because I don't want you to feel like that I'm doing anything that I shouldn't do. You know, mm -hmm. so it's okay to be triggered, but we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do, you know, to change our mindset so we don't have the same actions we had before we went to prison? To me, that's what's important. I agree. Ram Yeah, and and you know, um, I, I think too, like after lockup, you talk about all the different triggers and what has been taught, what the narratives that we have taken on and believe them ourselves. And yes, it takes a lot of just getting with yourself and with a counselor and working through these all of these narratives, all these lies um, that we've sometimes taken on because of history. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, because a lot of times people say, well, you, you attract where you're at. It's about your energy. I get that. And, and I get that it's about energy. I believe that we are all filled with energy. At the same time, we have to acknowledge what, or I had to acknowledge what had been taught, what had been presented to me. Where, where was I afraid of myself? Mm 
you know, and that's um, and, and African American people, people of color need to look at, am I afraid of me? Am I afraid of me and people like me, people who look like me? Have I passed judgment on my brother? Have I passed judgment on my sister? Have I passed judgment on children and groups of people because they're different from me? Have I bought into this narrative and become like the slave owner? Have I done that? And, and because if, if the mindset, I have to ask myself, I get nervous too. I called my friend one time, I was so angry. I said, you know, I'm, I sweat bullets sometimes. I was doing that just because a cop car was behind me. Just perspiring for no reason. Or was it for a reason? And I don't know till they, till they pull me over. And, and it's usually something. Well, I had one, one officer in Dearborn pull me over in my caravan with my children and said that my license plate was dirty. And it was snow outside. It was snowing. And it was dirt, dirty snow getting on everybody's license plate. These are the things that we need to understand and then ask, how can I make a difference? And I'm, I'm telling, please start sharing, get in touch with us, let us know people who need to get out of office. Who is their replacement? Who is standing up for the cause that we stand for? So, yeah, Reverend Tia. So I'm going to go to the program that we watched the other day, Life at the Lockup. And there were um, um, different stories that, um, that was presented in this PBS program. But uh, a few things that stood out for me was how people came home and this one lady who was coming home, she had nowhere to go. And so she constantly had to, um, she went back to where everything began, you know, where the drugs were at, where the people that she, you know, had more in common with. And so when we see these things and I think about how it's hard after you are a felon, there's not many places for you to stay. And if you don't have family members, if you don't have um, someone who is concerned about your well-being um, to take you in or help you out until you are able, you know, that could be um, a path that a lot of people take. So I heard where Mr. James, um, um, Mr. Jones was saying about, you know, you have to start before you come home. I think that's big, but also I think the system doesn't set you up to start where you come home because where do you go? Mr. Clifton, Maurice. <laughs> I beg to differ. You know, I taught re-entry 19 years inside. Okay. It's just that it's just that men choose to do their times differently. 
you can take with on a compound with 2200 people if i have a resume writing class if i have a criminal breaking a class i started called breaking ties like breaking your criminal thinking i might get 15 people when out of 2000 people 1800 1800 are black you know what i mean out of 2400 people 1800 are black you know what the thing was the only place that i went to where it really flourished it was in bennettsville to where it got so big and the warden had to come over and sit into the 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 uh class and he asked us to move to the gym so we moved to the uh i mean to the chapel we moved to the chapel and it was like it was still standing room only because me and started coming in when we had the talks about breaking our criminal thinking because you can get out I know guys that have gotten out here in Mississippi and when they put him out on a Saturday with $25 and he's catching the bus from here in the Mississippi Delta down to the coast, which is about a six hour drive. So it's about an eight to 10 hour bus ride. He had made it only to Greenville and he went to the bus station and turned himself in and said that he couldn't make it because the state is not really set up to prepare people for release. We're working on that now. In addition to being the chaplain, I'm a reentry coordinator, so I try to bring in programs to help guys deal with the transition of going home. So I have to make a conscious decision for myself. No matter what class is offered, if I don't take it, it won't benefit me. There are several classes, um, you know, guys getting their degrees in prison, anything, but guys will not go over and take the more more the GED. We have more guys incarcerated who don't have their GED than it's the greater percentage of the population don't even have their GED. And they won't, you can't take a class in the federal system until you get your GED. So guys don't want to put in the work to get their GED. They have this stigma or thing because they were somebody on the street when they come to prison. They're afraid to ask for help to better themselves. They won't stand in the mirror and say, I really need to better myself. They won't let their guards down so that somebody a nerd that's incarcerated for a money learner or embezzlement can teach them how to get their ged can teach them the math portion so with they got this big stigma that that uh i'm going to make it and you know and the deck is already stacked against it i, I try to tell people i said man listen you see white guys with seven eight nine ten felonies and they only got they got a number that they can do. When I say a number they can do, they don't, in the federal system, we call it the alphabet. They don't have a life sentence. You got so many first-time African-Americans that have a life sentence in the federal prison. You know what I mean? And so you got to be mindful of that, that the deck is already stacked against you. They're playing with 52 and you're only playing with six or seven cards. Mm -hmm. And they're not aces and they're not, they're not kings. So you got to almost get lucky. When I say get lucky, man, you got to go in and take everything that you have and prepare yourself. You got to prepare yourself for the opportunity. You know, I always tell them one of my biggest things was tell them that, you know, freedom is when preparation meet opportunity. If you're not preparing yourself for the opportunity to be free, then you'll never be free. You're going to still leave incarcerated. When I say leave incarcerated, you're going to be dependent on the system uh, while you're still out. You know what I mean? And so they have, it's, man, guys, men and women have to know that there are opportunities because 
I wanted to teach classes. I wanted to learn what I could teach so I could help my fellow brother inside. Nobody wants to help anybody. It's that every man for himself. It's designed to keep us divided, man. When you look at Michelle Alexander's book, you know, you look at it that they they they, they create systems, the whole Willie Lynch platform, but it, it's, it's, it's the systematic form of the Willie Lynch syndrome to where they, they, they divide us up in classes and they make us chase things that don't even matter to us. You know, we, 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 we get out and we think that we're better because we drive a, a car that we can't afford or we wear clothes that we can't truly afford instead of being productive and creating our own wealth. We're dependent on the system. The, the whole time they're in there, they're dependent on the people. They're dependent on the people to feed them. They're dependent on the people to close them. And they're dependent. They think that they're going to automatically come out. I ask guys right now when I go in every day, what are you going to do when I get out? Everybody say, find a job. I said, okay. Find a job doing what? I mean, just find a job. Just doing whatever. I said, what's, give me what, whatever. And I always carry an occupational handbook with me. And I ask them, find whatever in the occupational handbook and tell me what that is. You know, and so they can't, when they, you know, when I, when some of them, when I turn a light on, I said, man, you got to have a definitive goal that you can accomplish before you get out so that you'll be job ready when you make it home. You know, people don't want people don't like to talk about that. You know, they don't like to talk about those things that where where we're selling ourselves short. Right. We're selling ourselves short. You know, and life after lockup, like James said, begins at the first day of your incarceration. You got to juggle that between fighting for your case and preparing for you to be free once you get home. That's it. So it starts while you're inside. You can't wait till you get home and think that you're fully prepared just because you got released. You know, you're, most of the time, they know they're outdated. You know, when they got 18 to 20 years, man, you haven't done 18. You haven't took one class. I know some guys have been incarcerated. 18 years, man, have not taken one class. Have not taken one trade. And they got HVAC, electrical, plumbing, carpentry. These are all NCCR, you know, certified courses where they can go to a construction company and work. In addition to uh, other trades that they have at specialized and we're trying to, you know, so, but we can't even get enough guys to even get their GED to, in order to take them. We've even waived the fact that they need their GED to take some of these courses because they won't come in and get their, their GEDs. You know what I mean? But it's you saw me not working. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. And so... It's it's a lot of things, man. It's a lot of things that we can talk that we can talk about is from inside and outside. Because I go back inside every day, and sometimes I go back in seven days a week. You know, just to just to like be there for the guys, right. just to get them a sense of hope. Man, people don't talk about the rate of suicide that you know that's inside. They don't talk. You know, we expect a guy who's been in uh, segregation for two and a half years to come out. And release him from segregation and think that he's going to be normal. He's been in a cage for, for, for two and a half years. And you think that he's going to be normal. He's going to come out. He, you, you just created a press. If you lock a dog up for if you lock a dog up for a year straight, when he come out, he's going to bite the first thing that come near. Mm-hmm. You you understand? Yeah. So so is the human psyche. Man, no, I'm telling you, man, we just got we got to address these issues. We can't keep sweeping these issues under the rug 
we got a lot of brothers and sisters right now, man, in California, Chicago, Illinois, Michigan, Miami. Florida is the worst state. Florida got more licenses without parole, and 80% of their licenses without parole are African-American. We got to look at how the whole prison system was formed in Mississippi and Alabama and uh, Louisiana and Texas. It was formed after Reconstruction because there were too many free black men. Mm -hmm. So they created a system. They created laws like vagrancy uh, and all type of laws that, man, we even have a record right here to where we had the youngest man ever you know, incarcerated. He was 10 years old. He was incarcerated for vagrancy. He served 18 months for vagrancy at 10 years old. You know, the youngest, the youngest person executed in Georgia, Swinney, Antonio Swinney, at 12 years old, with a woman twice his size, she's saying that he raped her. He was 12 years old. You know, we don't talk about these atrocities and the horrors in here. I mean, man, you know, when, when people think about Mississippi, you think Mississippi, the South, period. The Alabamas, you know, where they were sicking the dog on us, where they were hanging us in the open, where they were, you know, where they were coming in at night, burning our houses down. You know, they don't talk. That's a mental trauma in itself. But we don't talk about how all these prisons were formed after Reconstruction. Designed because there was too many free free black men here. Black men here in the South. So that's why a lot of our people migrated. And then they came up with laws. We don't think about how Nixon, how Nixon before Pro designed the marijuana law and the LSD law to lock up African Americans. You know, the people say how they changed the law. We don't talk about how our current president wrote the crime bill, the 1994 crime, but how he authored the crime bill to make the tough on crime thing that spun off, you know, with, with Clinton and start with the crack law and everything. So we don't talk about these, how laws are designed, this, the draconian laws in Michigan. Right. How you change them just a little bit so you can just hit the release valve and let a few of us out. To think that you did, and the world sees that, okay, they changed the law in Michigan. They let a few people out. But it's still 75% African-American who are still incarcerated to to to, to uh, crimes that should be misdemeanors. Exactly. In Mississippi, you can get three, mis three misdemeanors, three Class A misdemeanors, and get a life sentence. But a white guy can get 16 felonies and not do, and not do five years. You know, so the system is designed to uh, uh, incarcerate us. It's designed to keep us not free after incarceration. Right. You know what I mean? You give a, you, He got a life. You get out on probation, you got to see a probation officer and pay. You just gave me $25 to get, out of, to get out of prison. If I don't find a job within that first month, my $25 to the probation officer is due, then I have to, if I don't pay that, you're going to violate me and I got to finish the term. Let's just say if I made parole on, on a life sentence. If I miss my if I miss my $20 payment in that month, the probation officer who's off-time white can violate me and send me back to prison. And then I have to do it five years before I come back up for, a proba for a probation. Yet and still, you haven't given me a contact for me to find a job. Right. You understand? This is happening all over, man. This is happening all over. Right. But uh, yeah. on the program, it was saying that the probation officer's job is to basically is he's an overseer. He doesn't do anything to, he's not a social worker. He doesn't do anything to help you 
um, find housing or help you get a job. He's just there to make sure that you're following the rules of the probation. And that's yeah, it. He's, he's and an so, extension of prison. Right. Attorney Hugo Matt, I have a question about the um, the state system. Is it pretty much the same? Is it like, do they have these kind of uh, opportunities for education and things like that? Well, first of all, there's a whole different set of guidelines for the federal system than it is for, for, for a state system, okay? Now, one of the things that President Obama did with his attorney general at the time, a man by the name of Eric Holder, was starting to understand the difference between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and the way those those charges were charged and the disproportionate number and the disparate sentencing between crack cocaine. I mean, it's both cocaine. Crack and powder cocaine are both cocaine. But crack cocaine, prevalent in the African-American community, you had predominantly black men, I might add, uh, charged and convicted and given like sentences five times as long as a white counterpart with powdered cocaine. That is clearly a cultural bias right there. Remember what I said, in 1964, two thirds of the print population in the United States of America was white. In 1994, excuse me, 19, in, in, in 1990 now, two thirds and growing of the print population, state and federal, is non-white. So in other words, th those dynamics have just split. Have just switched. So to answer your question, in terms of the of the state system, I can speak with some authority with the state of Michigan, and uh, you know, with with all due respect to the brother, it 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 is a lot in institutionalization of the system because in in the state of Michigan, you know, there's truth in sentencing. You know, there is no incentive to give a person, and they're already in a cage. They're already in a cage to give a person incentive to get out of that cage earlier and try to regain their humanity. So it doesn't matter how good you are in the state of Michigan. You could have five GEDs. You could have every kind of trade program, uh, culinary arts, uh, home improvement, plumbing, electrician, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You will not get out early from that minimum sentence. And another thing I want to say in the state of Michigan, People have the idea of when they reach that minimum sentence, they're out. That's not true. That's not true. You are eligible to be released, eligible. But when you have a governor as draconian as a man by the name of John Engler, who said, as long as I'm governor, I will stack them like cordwood. Okay. And I keep on telling you all that. I will stack them like cordwood. So what do you have? You have a governmental system that says, we will stack you like cordwood. We have no interest in you getting out early. You are making us money. You are giving jobs to people in these rural communities. You know, you know, Ionia, you know, uh, uh, Marquette, okay? All these prison facilities, you know, you know, like, like Coldwater, Riverside, okay? All these, Jackson, all these facilities there where money is being generated for the people in those communities. And the vast majority of them are not black, by the way those guards that are that are marshalling us so when when you ask me the question about about the state system in the state of michigan you are not even eligible to get into like certain programs till you're near your 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 erd okay your erd so what happens is you get log jammed that system gets constipated 
because you have so many people that want to get into a program, but the programs are limited. And they say, well, you cannot be released until you finish the program. So it's like a circular thing in the state of Michigan, okay? Um, and, and the governor has made some uh, um, positive notions in terms of offering programs for people like, you know, electrical programs and stuff like that. But I don't know if y'all remember, for a long time, black inmates couldn't get a Pell Grant, okay? You know, couldn't get a Pell Grant. You, you could not get money to go to a college university. Some of that has changed now, but not very much. So the system in the state of Michigan is designed to perpetuate itself. It's like it's like a machine that never breaks down. Okay, it it it, it, it it's a perpetual motion machine. So the only way we're going to do that is to keep fighting. For example, to put an end to truth in sentencing. Okay, and I urge everybody to sign that doggone petition. Put an end to truth and sentencing. Okay and stop the people from just putting you in there without any hope of, of getting out, okay? So, I mean, in the state of Michigan, those are some of the hurdles that we got to overcome. Yeah. Mr. Jones? Yes, Um, I would like to, I, I, I wanted to respond to a few things that were said. Um, okay. The first thing I wanted to respond to was the comment that was made saying that the probation officers are overseers. This is true in a sense. However, times are changing. And I say that because I didn't mention that I, I am a, a member of what they call the art court in um, in the United States District Court. It's an alternative reentry court. And now they and it's a it's made up of district judges, United States probation officers, the public defender's office and um, the probation officers. You know, so um, every all all branches of the judicial system are now participating in trying to implement some type of reentry to help people not um, the program that I'm dealing with or I'm involved with, it what it does is it chooses the individuals that have that have violated on supervised release within the first six months of their release and it takes them through a one year program which helps them prepare resumes. We do mock job uh, mock uh, interviews, we send them on job leads, you know, we we help them it, you know, with providing counseling, amongst other things. So back to it, you know, my, my point is things are changing. Also, a lot of people are not aware that money was given to, and I speak from the federal level, I can't speak for the, the state. Money was given to the United States Probation Department under the Second Chance Act to provide to individuals, individuals that's on supervised release. If you're having problems paying rent, you want to go to school, or any other obstacle that you may come, encounter while you're out, they have funds to help you get past those obstacles. A lot awesome. of people don't know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was saying that's awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of people don't know about about these funds, so they don't know to ask for them. I right. personally had the probation department pay for me to go to a CDL class. I uh, um, told a friend of mine and they helped him with back rent, helped him with food and all of that stuff there. So there's a there, there's there's beginning to be a change in how how um things are, are how people are perceived and how they're trying to help people stay out now. You know, not all courts are doing this. Not all probation officers are doing this. But where I am, you know, they are they are going in the direction. You know, uh, speak on that as well as say that um a lot of my a lot of the things I done 
started, you know, the, the, the Reinvention Center books and all that started while I was in. I wrote the book while I was in. You know, um, I went to school and I took a lot of courses and I done a lot of things when I was in. Had I had I waited, like I see a lot of these guys that's that's violating their parole within the first six months, had I waited like them, then I'm stacking my I'm stacking the deck against me. Because I I encounter guys now that I'm working with that come home and don't have a birth certificate, don't have a social security card. So it takes months for you to get that. But in the meantime, if you would have had that, you could have applied for some type of um, food assistance. You could apply for some Medicaid. You know, it, you could have took some of the pressure off of your loved ones or yourself, whatever it may be. But if you come home and you don't have that pertinent documents, you know, um, it's two months now and three months to get a Social Security card. And the way they're making you do it is you have to drop your original birth certificate and other documents inside of a box and, and wait on them to process it and return your documents back to you. So you have to hope that that happens. You know, so I'm saying that it's best to um, obtain as much as you can while you're in because it, you, you're coming out to a world that's totally against you. You know, especially as a black man, everything's against you. You know, so you, you know, my position is just to try to do as much as you can to make it easier for you when you, before you come home. Yeah. Attorney Hugoma, I have a question. And um, I want to know when you, um, so we have a prison sentence, uh, 30 years or whatever, and you saw your time. Why, why are we still felons? <laughs> when we come home, why are, I mean, you know, now in Michigan, we still have, I mean, they're starting to do the expungement thing, but why, why are we still felons if we served our time? If the sentence, if you, they, you did to crime, you served your time, you out, you home, why are we still felons? We are still felons because everybody wants to be able to feel superior to somebody else. You know, white systemic racism is built on the premise, I don't care how poor you are, I don't care how many kids you have, I don't care if you have no education, I don't care if you live on a dirt farm, at least you ain't black. So <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that we need to perpetuate in a, in, a, in a capitalistic system, and I am a capitalist, okay, in a competitive system, capitalism is based on you being superior to somebody else. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's based on you having more money than somebody else. It's based on you having more economy than somebody else. It's based on you having more resource than somebody else. It's based on you having more education than somebody else. It's based on you having more religion than somebody else. It's based on you having more social status than somebody else. So, the reason we are felons um, and, and, and continue people to be in felons, you know, and from my own 10 year penitentiary experience, I understand is because we need to feel and black people are falling into, into this, too, that we are better than somebody else. We judge our value by how we are compared to somebody else. So, for example, in the state of Michigan, my life is an open book through the grace of God, I was able to regain my law license and continue to practice law. But as a quote-unquote felon, as an attorney, I can pick a jury. But as a felon, I cannot sit on one. 
Okay, that's the irony. And I use my own example of the irony of the penalty that I still pay. I cannot serve on a jury. Many licenses I cannot get. I cannot get housing. I cannot get food assistance. I cannot get education. In the state of Michigan, you've got to contact uh, institutions and let them know about your background because they may deem you as a person, you're not worthy to be on campus with the rest of these students, even though your, your, your GED, your, your uh, LSAT, everything about you is superior, but because you've got that mark on you, you have got to be inferior. So why, J-Love, why? Because we have got to maintain somebody below us. We have gotten so retarded, and I don't mean that in a nasty way to people who have mental challenges, but we've gotten so stunted in our growth um, in the greatest nation on the face of the earth, we still cannot realize the fact that a person is down doesn't make me better, okay? It doesn't make me better, okay? The only way I'm better, if I want to consider myself better, all of you. If I think myself smarter than all of you, then let's put us all on an even playing field, all right? Don't let me have an advantage because of the color of my skin or my income about you. So if I want to compete, let me compete with you on an even level keel. And America's not about that, J-Love. America's never been about an even keel. We raped the Indians. We raped his woman. We took his land and we killed him. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Gave them people smallpox with blankets from the U.S. Cavalry. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Enlisted our own black people. They called Buffalo soldiers because our hair was woolly. Like, a, like buffalo hair, to exterminate Indians all in Arizona, New Mexico, you understand? Yes, yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Okay? So so we our culture is one of superiority, J-Love. That's why we're always going to have felons. Mr. Maurice, in your opinion, I'm here. Uh, why are we still felons after we serve our sentence? Because that's how the Constitution is written. It's, you know, at first it's written for African Americans to, they never repealed the three-fifths law, so that's why they were always, that's why we still, as African American, that's why we still, uh, our right to vote is still come up for a revote every 30 years. You know what I mean? We still have to revote for our right to vote. We don't have automatic right to vote because they never really conferred citizenship upon us after slavery you know even with the passage of the 14th amendment so we you know we they it's like uh and what a lot of people don't know too is that in the federal system and the way they're doing it now with the pipeline to prisons with the, from the schools to the prison the pipeline to prison that they're taking your truancy that you get while you are in in high school in elementary and high school and using part using that as part of your criminal conduct is your background criminal conduct, like a child to enhance you and give you a greater sentence. If you had a couple of truancy charges while you were in high school or elementary school, they can use that, even though you were a juvenile, even though you were still in school, they can use that to give you a greater uh, sentence in the federal prison. So it's designed to keep us down or at bay. And another thing it does for a lot of states it takes away that right to vote power. He's systematically ostracizing you from 
being a part of the political system in order to change laws. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they don't want you to have that right to vote. So you have to write. Like in Mississippi, you can only expunge one, one, one charge one time. You understand what I'm saying? You can only expunge one charge one time, be it a misdemeanor, be it a felon. You can only expunge, and then they don't necessarily even like to expunge felonies. But the thing about the federal system, I was able to, you know, a lot of a lot of times people don't know that when you're in the federal system that you still can apply for your right to vote. So I was able to, the year I came out, because I voted while I was inside also. I did it while I was inside. I petitioned the court for the right to vote because that's a constitutional given right, and they're not supposed to be able to take that against you. So we got to find ways to educate these people in the state that they, by law, <laughs> even though you're a convicted felon, and it says on the surface that you're not, they, they can take your right to vote. They can't take your constitutional right to vote no matter what charge you, you know, no matter what charge you commit. The same way they can't deny you. That's why the feds had to repeal that about the Pell Grant. They can't take your right to access to education with the Pell Grant. You know what I mean? They'll put something on the surface, but if you look deeper and apply deeper and appeal it and apply it to the courts, they want to keep you that because they want to take you out of the, you know, the political. You think if all the men and women, African-American, who came home from these states in Michigan had an opportunity to vote for, to change the law, the truth and sentencing law, then we would come out, you know, we, you know, but half of us who are out don't come out to vote, you know, until it's something that affects us directly. All issues affect us. We, they got to understand that everything that goes up for for vote, the, the person we're voting for, somehow he's going to affect us before his term of office is, is over with. You understand? So yeah. we got to, first of all, find a way to apply for our right to vote, even as a felon. And a felon is just is a way of saying uh, you're not like 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 uh, Attorney Max said you're not in the same class as me. It declassifies us as normal human beings. Oh, that's that bad guy. You know, most people only think about prison based on what they've seen on TV, Shawshank Redemption, America, Me, and all the prisons. So that's the first thing that society thinks. Unless you're directly affected, unless your son or daughter or loved one is directly in prison, unless you're directly effect, affected by incarceration. You've been incarcerated yourself or you have somebody, a son or a daughter who's in prison unjustly. Then you think about mass incarceration. But other than that, man, people are living their lives every day. They're not thinking about mass incarceration until it hits home. And all the people who are in, you know, the lawmakers and everything, they were only that close to being incarcerated themselves so they but they want to ensure i'm just yeah that's you know that's the truth that's the truth and some of them for some of the things they done they should have been incarcerated but they got a slap on the wrist and they were passed over they should have been incarcerated you know so the, the truth is the truth is the truth man <laughs> and they don't want us to know the truth but we have to dig and find for them the truth is on the surface for us, we got to dig. We got to dig and shovel and dig. We got to dig up them old bones and skeletons in their closet to find out why they're still keeping us suppressed. You know what I mean? Right. So, that's all. That's all. Mr. Jones. I, I agree with both of these gentlemen that, you know, it's, it's to put us in a different class. And once we're in that different class, it, it prohibits us from 
certain jobs, you know, certain privileges, certain benefits and things that um, that may be afforded to someone who haven't been a felon. It kind of lets everyone know, hey, this is this is a guy with a, you know, a person that has um, that, that is looked on by this superior class that Mr. Uh, Attorney Hugo Mack was saying as um, this person looked at us with disdain. You know, um, so I think that that's why they keep that on us to prohibit us from being on the jury, as he's saying. You know, so that's why I believe that they continue to not keep that ex-felon label on us. Because when we come home, really, there, you know, there's no reason why it should be on us. Right. I agree. Fabatia? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, what everybody has said so far has been just excellent. I think it's up to us now. And, you know, it is time, it's high time for us to redefine what wealth looks like. What, what is true wealth? What is the definition? Rewrite the definition for what's a fine character and, and make it so that you can't be bought. You know, um, laying your principles or your ethical guidelines to the side and being bought to, to take on another narrative, being bought to support a certain party. You know, some people will, will go along with whatever narrative it is just because it's going to make them look good before people. But, you know, we're, we're, now is the time to stand on your guidelines and your principles. Stand strong, not be bought. Don't be bought. Don't, don't allow money to just be the end all for, for your answer to everything. And the wealth, Yes, wealth needs to be redefined. And I, I'm hearing, you know, families need to be self-sufficient. We, we have relied upon government in so many ways for so long to where they have us to the very seed that goes in the ground. And we need to get back to what we know and, and just know that your history is filled with wisdom and knowledge. People who write the math books, who write the equations. It's, it's filled with so much who develop the language. And when we know the truth, that's why the truth does set you free. <laughs> you got to know it. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I'm gonna start with Mr. Maurice. If you, um, we're getting ready to close, but if you could give some closing remarks for someone who just uh, returned home or been home for a minute that's trying to find their way, what is it that you would uh, want them to know uh, based off of your experiences? Oh, your mic is mute. Uh, I would tell him, him or her first to be patient with him or herself because everything is not going to come at uh, uh, at once. And to, I guess you could say, I want you to choose the right word. I want to say persevere, but I want you to, because everything, don't worry about what people think about you. Every morning you got to get up and reset. Every morning you got to get up and reset and know that it's a new day that it's going to get better 
for you if you continue to press on. There's no shortcut. There's no side street that you can take to get back on your feet faster. You got to be patient and walk through the fire. If it takes six months to get your driver's license, so it be. Stay out of that car. Don't do anything risky to send you back to where you just came. And don't look back over your shoulder. Don't look back over your shoulder for uh, guidance. Look at it as a reminder of a place that you don't want to return to. You know, and reach out to people. Don't be afraid to ask for help. There are a lot of people out there willing to help you, but you can't be afraid. You got to put that pride aside, man. Hey, man, I need help. And so once, and you, once you receive that help and get back on your feet, then pass it on, man. Turn around and pass it on. Turn around and pass it on. So, but most of all, just be patient with yourself and just be patient with everything that's around you. So that's the best advice that I can give. That's the thing that, that sustained me. And I know that that, that that was one highway that I didn't want to travel back down. So I didn't want to get on anything that would lead me back to back to prison. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Jones, I have the same question. If you could, you know, give some advice. Okay, I'm, gonna see I can. I'm, a, I'm a little bit more in the, uh, in the city now. <laughs> I'm involved in more now. I was in the okay. country before, but let me, uh, let me answer that question. Okay. Um, in addition to patient, in addition to patience, like Mr. Uh, Clifton has said, I want you know um, people to. There are several things I want you to understand that the, the humility that you show while you was in jail, because when we're in jail, you know um, we work and we accept, we we work for pennies, and you know we make things happen. You know, when you come home, you have to keep that same humidity. You can't come home and say, hey, I don't want to accept this job because it's not paying me enough or I won't I won't work at McDonald's or I won't work here. You know, I'm not encouraging nobody to make that a career, but I'm saying use that as a, as a start, as a stepping stone. We worked in prison for 25 cents an hour or at the most $1.35 an hour doing jobs that were forced upon us. You know, so keep that humidity you know, when you that you had in the inside. When you come on the outside and as Mr. Clifton said, if you set your goals and you continue to work through, through work towards your goals with the humidity, you will accomplish them. Yes. Attorney Hugo Max, same question. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I've always been a mama's boy, you know. Um I was I was Ivy Max's youngest child. And as far as I'm concerned, her best child, the best thing she ever did was having me. Okay. <laughs> now watch. If, now, if somebody slapped me down from heaven, you know that's her putting me in my place. So my, my thing is this. What I would tell that person are the words of a woman named Maya Angelou. And part of a poem she wrote, Still I Rise. I just want to read a few paragraphs to it. Or to it. Okay. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may tread me down the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Just like moans and like, just like moons and like suns, with uncertainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still again, I'll rise. So what I'm saying is I would tell that man or that woman you again will rise, okay? You will rise because if a man or woman can survive the penitentiary, 
where you were being told when to go to bed, when to get up, when to go to the bathroom, okay, when you can eat, when you got to be here uh, in a certain time and place. You have lived in slavery, whether you know it or not. You have lived the life of a slave, all right? And what I'm saying is, if you are brave enough, if being in the penitentiary or the jail, if you are brave enough to stand that and not kill yourself, because like the brother was saying, suicide happens a lot more often than you would ever realize in a jail or a penitentiary. So the fact that you managed to get a, a parole, okay, showed that you were brave enough not to take the easy way out, okay? And I don't care what they, and these men that have been in the penitentiary will tell you, if you want to hurt yourself, they ain't got enough guards around there to stop you from doing it. A lot of the guards in there will stand by and watch you do it. Go back to their office, get a cup of coffee. Am I wrong, brothers? Am I wrong? Okay, you see what I'm saying? We'll, we'll, we'll Absolutely not. The thing to happen. They will allow that to happen. Either you do it to yourself or will allow somebody else to do it to you and nobody see or know a damn thing. And if I'm wrong, these men can tell me I'm wrong, okay? So what I'm saying is if you were strong enough to be willing to go through a penitentiary, then don't come out and die. Don't come out and die, okay? Because you got a story to tell. Somebody needs to hear the story of your incarceration. Somebody needs to hear the story of how you endured hearing them guards calling you nigger, which happened to me, by the way. Somebody's got to hear your story about people who look like you wanting to hurt you or shank you or, or punk you or something like that to stop them from getting down the road you went into. So that if you're strong enough to come out the penitentiary, you're strong enough to live here. And like my Angelo said, like dust again, I'll rise. Yes. Tony Hugo Matt, I'm looking for your banner. If people want to reach you. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> there we go. And hey, Jay Love, with, with you and the other panelists, mind me shamelessly self-promoting because I oh, did yeah. a little bit late. Okay. What well, you my name, Dr. Hugo J. Mack Esquire, uh, the people's lawyer, you know, the <laughs> true king of Scotland, Russia, and the Hebrides. So my <laughs> thing is, is this is that. If you find yourself on Trouble Boulevard and your hoopty fitting to get towed, park your car on Mac Street. <laughs> www.hmaclaw.com is your hookup. Hmaclaw is your hookup. Hmaclaw is your hookup. And God bless you. And I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Uh, before I get, I'm coming to you, Rabbitia. Hold on. Um, Maurice. If people want to reach out to you, where can they get in contact with you? Mm, I'm on Twitter as uh, Maurice56. Uh, six. I'm on uh, Instagram at two underscore two black sipping. T yeah, T O O underscore the number two black sipping. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Maurice Clifton, Maurice Sippy Clifton. And so, uh, and my, you know, you can get. You can reach me at my uh, at sale at sale with sipping uh, at gmail.com either way. Okay. You know, I, yeah. Or and you can reach out on my yeah on uh, two black uh, two black apparel .com. That's my the closing lines. You can leave the number in there. You can reach me through there in the chat box. So. And also either way. 
doing Mr. Jones on Sundays at eight o'clock on the growth hour. Mr. Jones. Yes, ma'am. If people want to reach you, how can they find I can, you? I can be reached at um, the reinventioncenter.org. That's a website. It has all my contact information on that. I also can be reached. I have a Facebook page, the reinvention center. I'm on Twitter. I mean, uh, Twitter as the reinvention center, as well as Instagram as the reinvention center. So I can be reached at all social media uh, sites as the reinvention center. And the growth hour. And the growth hour, of course, but that's that's you know um, screamed through the reinvention center on Facebook. Yes. Okay, Rabbitia. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was just so happy to be a part of this today and uh um excited about the work that is being done. I'm excited about what's happening in some of the prisons even in Michigan. I'm praying that we are taking on um greater responsibility of helping people. Uh I know that at one point that was the most antiquated prison system in the United States was Michigan. Mm -hmm. And um, and I did work for a reentry program that were using dollars and they weren't doing any of the, for women, they were not helping them to be prepared when they came out. So when I would go pick them up, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done anything. And I always wondered where is the money going? So that's my last point, y'all. We got to figure out where the money goes, how does it get there, and make sure it's being channeled to do what it was supposed to do. And of course, you can reach me at The Choice Zone um, on www.thechoicezone.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, also Twitter too, but I don't do a lot of that now, y'all. Y'all just sometimes <laughs> I think we're doing too much. <laughs> So, you guys, if you have any questions or you just want to reach any of us, just shoot me an email at turning a moment into a movement at gmail.com. I want to thank you guys for a great show. If you want to know more about um, Gerard's story, conviction story, you can go to www.change.org slash justice for Jabbar to read about the story and sign the petition and please share the petition. Next week on Turning a Moment into a Movement, attorney David Robinson is going to be back. He's the author of the book, You See a Hero and I See a Human Being. We're going to talk about everything, police accountability, um, Attorney David Robinson has been suing police agencies for about, I think, 30 years. He was a former Detroit police officer that became a lawyer, and he is awesome. And he will be here on next Friday because we have a lot to talk about. And I want to thank you guys for joining us. Um, Rebetia, thank you. Maurice, thank you. Mr. Jones, thank you. Attorney Hugo Matt, Trisha, thank you. <laughs> and we'll see you guys next week on Turning a Moment into a Movement. Be blessed. God bless. You. <laughs>